Welcome to Finance Lab, a podcast for the intellectual investor, powered by Dalbar, an independent financial research firm dedicated to improving the investor experience. Finance Lab is where real investors get practical insight and perspective from real experts. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the fascinating world of finance, exploring topics like investing, financial planning, market trends, and everything in between. We're here to empower you with the tools and knowledge necessary to make informed financial decisions. Hello and welcome to Finance Lab. I'm your host, Corey Clark, Chief Marketing Officer at Dalbar. The topic of today's show is the retirement crisis in America, problems and solutions. Now, for millions of working Americans, the main financial goal is to fund their retirement and to not run out of money. Uh, But sadly, many Americans are not on track to fulfill that basic goal. And it's a situation that many have coined as a a crisis uh, in America. And it not only poses a problem for the individual aspiring retirees, but it's also a societal issue. Nobody benefits from a retirement crisis in our country. And in this episode, our, our goal is to frame the issue. What are the causes and most importantly, what are some solutions? Uh, and to help guide us in this discussion today is our guest, Dwight Rich. Dwight is president and owner of Rich Wealth Management, LLC. He's a certified financial planner, a registered social security analyst, and a fiduciary asset manager with over 27 years experience. He holds a bachelor's degree in finance from the University of Louisville, and he's been a guest and commentator in Louisville's Business First. Before starting his own wealth management firm in 2017, Dwight worked for Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and Payne Weber, where he started his career in 1995. So he brings to the discussion 28 years of experience. Dwight, thank you for joining us today on Finance Lab. Thanks for having me, Corey. So I'd like to start by defining the issue, uh, if we could. Um, I guess in broad terms, in your mind, what is the current retirement planning environment in America today? Um, you know, in a word scattered, I think would be a good use, uh, word to use. It's really hard to define. I, I think like um, uh, like a lot of media, uh, there has been so much emphasis um, on, on kind of clickbait and and, and trying to um, monetize uh, uh, viewership that there's been you know, a lot of misinformation, I think, uh, maybe uh, in, the, in the whole subject matter. Um, not to mention the fact that you've got so many different types of professionals rendering financial advice um, with maybe not a completely consistent message or uh, regulatory framework. So when when we were talking before the show, you had described to me what you uh, said were the, the three three legs of the retirement stool, which I thought was a sort of a great way to sort of frame it. Uh, could you share with us what you shared with me before the show in terms of the, the the three legs of the retirement stool? Right. So traditionally, the, the three legs have been you know, social security, um, pensions, and then, of course, savings investment. Those have really been the, the, the primary stools, or the legs of the stool, rather. All right. Well, I'd like, like to jump on pensions right away because when I hear that, it's sort of like the first thing I think is that, that this this is one of the macro changes that's you know occurred over the last I don't know, 20, 30 years or so that's changed the face of the whole retirement equation for, for folks. Um, so wh- where where does that fit in today? How, how should investors be thinking about pensions and, and, and how that fits into their equation, if at all? Yeah. So it's, well, if, if you're lucky enough to have a pension, um, and I think the, the number is somewhere less than 12 or 15% of people in the private sector have a pension. So you could consider yourself very fortunate if you do have one. Um, you know, if you're working for the government, you know, typically there are pensions available and you're a teacher or um, working in the government in some, some capacity, then you, you've got a pension. But and I'm not sure, I can't re- recall when exactly the 401k came into existence. I think it was the early 80s before I got into the business. But, you know, corporate America obviously made a, a choice to go away from the defined benefit programs and put it on the uh, individual um, employee uh, for their savings instead of um, having that defined benefit or pension. And unfortunately, in America, I would say that 
that three-legged stool has become a, a two-legged stool for most people. But if you are lucky enough to get a pension, uh, there's some decisions to be made there too. Um, you know, most pensions in America, they give you a, a choice now as to whether you take the payment or a lump sum option. And it's individual for, for everyone as far as what choice makes the most sense. But there's a few things to, to consider on that. Um, a, you know, often when clients come to us, if they have a pension, they'll have a couple different choices. You know, they'll have a choice for their married a spousal benefit and, and how they, you know, make that choice, whether they get a 50% or a 100% pension choice. So those types of, uh, and that's with your monthly payment. Um, so you've got to crunch the numbers and get granular on, you know, a projected longevity, uh, the family dynamics and, and the whole thing. And that calculation on the, on the uh, lump sum um, that uh, co- corporations or entities that will pay the pension lump sum will give you changes based on the interest rate environment. So now, as we sit today with you know, uh, interest rates in the short end up to over 5%, it looks a little different. Actually, it, it, it lowers the lump sum amount and the calculations that you would make to try and, um, if you will, game the system as to what makes the m- most sense from a math standpoint, taking the pension as a monthly benefit or taking it as a lump sum. In other words, if you assume a lifetime of, let's just say, 90 years old and the person's 65 and the lump sum is X, then what is the the interest rate that they're solving for? What is that uh, present value of that lump sum? Um, not to get too far in the weeds, what is that turning into as far as a return? You know, so so there's a, a calculation that people have to make to really make that decision. And the the second part of it, though, too, is they have to look at if they're in the private sector, they're being insured by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, but those limit they, there's limits to that coverage, and. We saw that play out in, in black and white here in, in the early 2000s when United Airlines pension went uh, at default. And the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation came in and insured that pension, but the pensioners got about 49 cents on the dollar. Um, now, those are really nice pensions for those pilots. They were, you know, six-figure pensions and so forth. But all of a sudden, um, you know, maybe a, a pilot who was expecting a ten thousand dollar a month pension was getting, you know, five thousand. I, mean, I don't know the precise numbers, but so so there's there's some um, things to consider on on the whole pension side if you're fortunate to have that pension. Yeah, that that, that that's a great point. I, I sort of think, uh, without giving it too much thought, that oh, well, pensions are sort of one of those set it and forget it. There's really no decision to be made. But a, as you aptly pointed out there still is decisions that need to be made and, and some, some granular analysis uh, that needs to be made of the individual to really know whether lump sum or a distributed uh, amount makes sense. So that, that, that's great. And, and, the, and so the takeaway there, I just want to make sure that I understood it correctly, is generally when the interest rate environment is higher, you will generally have a smaller lump sum that will be available, you know, generally speaking. That's correct, because they'll use it as a, like a discount. Uh, value. Um, so, right, as, as interest rates are lower, you, you see some of those pension lump sums, you know, expand. And, you know, I, I can speak from experience here. I mean, a, a client we're working with right now is probably going to retire this year. We were, you know, they keep getting that number and it's it's shrinking because interest rates have gone up so much over the last, you know, 18 months. That's fascinating. I hadn't I really, that's, uh, part of the pension I, I had never really considered or, or thought too much of. Anything else with respect to, to pensions? You know, I know that it's something that's sort of phasing out, um, but I, I just any other thoughts that you have on, on that? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's, you know, again, I, I think uh, the risk is for people to take a very binary approach and say, it's this or it's that. You should always take the lump sum or you should always take the payments. And I just don't, my professional opinion is that it's not that simple. Yeah, there are some some serious reasons to consider taking a lump sum, um, you know. But I think that uh, there there's good reasons to consider taking uh, you know the, the monthly uh, benefit too. I mean, if 
you, you know, if you take the lump sum, then you're going to have to manage that money and you're going to have to ask yourself, well, um, are you going to be able to generate a cash flow at the same, you know, rate using the life expectancy that we're kind of assuming, whether that's 90 or whatever. And, um, you know, some people aren't sophisticated enough to do that, or uh, there's a comfort level, you know, and having that monthly uh, uh, pension coming in. But on the other side of it, you know, you don't have any legacy value. Um, if, God forbid, you and your spouse were both killed and, uh, you know, you had the spousal benefit, you know, there, there's nothing left, obviously, um, to your heirs if if you've taken the uh, the monthly option. So there's there's a lot of things to consider and just to get it right. Thanks for that. And you would, you'd mentioned the, the second leg of the stool, uh, which, you know, in, in some ways, for, to me, I, I, I wonder if this is also something that could eventually get phased out, or that's something that, uh, that, that we've been hearing, that's Social Security. Uh, you're a, a registered Social Security analyst, so you have unique expertise in, in, this, uh, in this element of retirement income. Uh, what what do you advise your clients with respect to Social Security? How how should investors be thinking about it? Uh, where where does it how does it fit into this larger puzzle? You know, it's um, it, it's one of those other things that that, that gets a bit uh, politicized. Or well, if you're looking and you're paying attention to uh, governmental things, which I have to, but uh, you know, I it's uh, it's not my favorite hobby. But trust me. Um, you you see that um, the, the projections are that Social Security will only be seventy four or so percent funded by two thousand thirty four thirty five, right? And it can be used as kind of a political football to kind of point fingers at one party or the other. But the reality is that Social Security has been around. It's passed in nineteen thirty five. The first check went out in nineteen forty. It's been a pretty successful program from the standpoint of. You know, it's been stable. It's been a, you know, lifesaver for, you know, a lot of Americans. I mean, the reality is that it's the largest uh, retirement benefit for most Americans. It wasn't designed to be that, um, you know, but it, but it's ended up being that. And, and so, and, and the numbers are significant. I mean, this year, 2023, I think the maximum benefit is $4,555. So if you've got two spouses that were working and, and maxing out their Social Security, you've got people out there right now that are earning over $9,000 a month in Social Security benefits. And that and that's cost of living adjusted. So you could look at an income stream over a lifetime of that's, that's over $2 million. And that's in today's dollars. That's not inflated because we don't know what inflation will be. So there's, there's, if you had to go into the private market and kind of create your own cost of living adjusted income stream, it would be extremely expensive. Now, this is no endorsement of the program or a particular uh, political agenda. It's just a reality check. You know, it, it, it is what it is. And the the 74% funded, I think it, it's a concern. I mean, I, you know, you can vote accordingly and, uh, but it is unfortunately the reality of uh, our government's uh, spending in general. I mean, running deficits, I think, every year since 1969, except for a few years in, in, in the 90s. But with regard to Social Security, you have to keep in mind a few really important things. If you think Social Security is going to be going away, I want you to consider this. A, I think it's like 70%, the highest percentage of people in the age range of over 60 vote. So it is a third rail to cut Social Security. There's a video you can YouTube. I think it's uh, maybe Dan Raskin-Kowski. I'm trying to remember his name. Early 90s, getting chased down the street by a, by a bunch of seniors because he was he was a Democrat out of, uh, out of Chicago. But I, I can't recall. But he was he, he, he was stumping on cutting benefits to, to seniors. And, and they're all kind of chasing him in, in his car and he has to get out. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. But so it's a, it's a political third rail. You have to ask yourself, what do you think the chances are that Uncle Sam is going to renege on his commitments to to seniors any more than he would do uh, so to to veterans or uh, healthcare and so forth. So I, I think that's going to be probably the last thing that gets cut. But I will say this: in, in the reality of operationally, 
if you look at what the changes that have been made to Social Security since it was passed in 1935, you've had many, many changes. I mean, in the 50s and the 60s, the 70s, and the 90s, and as early as, two, or as late as 2016. So there's all kinds of changes they can make to the program with regard to the taxable base, the uh, calculation, the uh, claiming ages, and everything else to keep it solvent. So I think you have to operate under the assumption that it's going to be there. There's decisions to be made with respect to Social Security as well, right? Like as we talked about with pensions, uh, you know, notably when when to take, right? Every everyone is going to be faced with that decision of of what age to take. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that decision and how that affects the payout and, and how you uh, work with your clients about that decision? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I've been a certified financial planner now since I guess 2000. Looking at my certificate here, January of two thousand and seven, and like I said, in the business now for twenty eight years. Um, but I got to be honest with you, and 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 no disrespect to the uh, certified uh, financial planning board because the training I got there was absolutely fabulous. But the deep dive on social security is probably one area where that could be improved, and so we were bumping into cases on the social security side that um, were kind of baffling to us. And that's why I sought out this designation. The Social Security Code itself is 20,000 pages plus long. (laughs) Um, I Googled this for a presentation I'm doing later this month or next month. But the the Space Shuttle Crew Manual was 11,000 pages long, just for some context. So it, it is extraordinarily complicated. There's about 2,728 rules with hundreds of exceptions to those rules. And the statistics are are pretty frightening too. You know, the National Association of Registered Social Security Analysts, and by the way, they're not government affiliated. They're independent, private, and so on. They're they're recognized by the IRS and the uh, National Association of uh, Accounting Board and CFP and FINRA and so forth. They estimate that less than 4% of people get all the benefits that they could potentially get and that that average deficit is over $100,000 over the lifetime of the claimant. So that that's a big number, especially when you think of uh, average Americans uh, using that as their main income source for retirement. And I think, uh, again, there's there's a lack of information and lack of advice on that side and in the, the the cold reality and, and this is something I, I'm, I'm ashamed to to say that I didn't even realize until only a few years ago was that I used to send people to the Social Security administration around the, the time they would you know, consider claiming say well just you know schedule a time with the Social Security administration and and, and go through it and use your tax dollars put them to work you know but in the POMS manual, the Program Operating Manual System for the Social Security people that work at the uh, at the administration, they're not allowed to give advice, only information. And God bless them. I know that they're good people that work at the administration, and, and I don't think there's anything uh, that they're doing wrong on purpose. But some of the advice they, or some of the information they're giving can be wrong, and it's just because that you know they're they're uh, undertrained or understaffed overworked i'll give you a, I'll give you an example one kind of horror stories you have a widow that that went in to claim her widow's benefits and uh she's in her early 60s and when she did so they had her go ahead and claim her she she'd actually worked and was duly entitled in other words she had her widow's benefit that she's entitled to and she's entitled to her own benefit well People only do this once, right? So it's not like you get like a learning curve here. And so she went in and they had her go ahead and claim both benefits at the same time. Now, once you've claimed, you only get a 12-month window to reverse if you made a mistake. And by the way, you've got to pay back the many benefits that you've received. But what happened was that she could have taken her widow's benefit as early as 60, received that benefit, and let her personal benefit grow you know, past your full retirement age, it grows at 8% per year. And that benefit would have surpassed her widow, widow's benefit by age 70. She would have then claimed that. And that would have been tens of thousands of dollars in additional benefit. 
in stories like this, there's, there's just so many of them that people just, just don't really get that portion right. And I think the training that you had with the RSSA, the way that, that they explain it, it makes total sense is that you really have to look at social security as, as longevity insurance. And I think that you'll find that again, if you YouTube or you can, you could find so many different in air quotes, uh, financial advice on different media sources and so forth, kind of selling clicks, but you get these kind of binary calls on, on social security. Well, you should always claim early. You should always stick it at 62 or you should always claim it at 70. But there again, kind of like the pension decision, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, but by and large, people are taking it early. And I think it's about a third of Americans take it at 62. And uh, when they probably should have waited and they're just leaving just a ton of money on the table. Yeah. And I guess, I guess, you know, one of the scary parts about it is, you know, if a, if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, did it make a sound? And you know, how, how many of these decisions are, are made without them ever knowing, you know, the opportunity cost that was, you know, left behind in, in making those decisions. Um, because yeah, it's, it's, it's all shrouded in a little bit of mystery to the layman, right? You know, not to folks like yourself and those in the industry, but for the average investor, it couldn't be any more mysterious <laughs> than, uh, yeah. than, than it is. Um, and 20,000 pages will underscore that. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention on Social Security? Because we're, we're gonna we're gonna take a. I wanted to save the last uh, leg of the stool for when we get back from break. But before we do that, I just wanted to, you know, give you the opportunity to add anything with respect to, to Social Security that you'd like to share with the the audience. The claiming decision is is a big one, and I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but I think that that claiming decision is really one of the biggest financial decisions of your life. Because it echoes through, and it, they're, they're, people are living longer. I know that, you know, that I think the statistics were that our, our life expectancy went down here a couple of years ago, and I'm not sure where we're at right now. But by and large, it's gone up. And I know that they're keeping mice now alive to the equivalent of like 140 years old or the, the, the longevity. You just don't know what, what science it's going to bring. And I, I read a statistic uh, recently that said that I think we're, we're very shortly going to have over 3 million people in the United States that are over 100 years old. So you really need to think about this. There's there's nothing else that you can get that appreciates with um, the cost of living, right, with your, your COLA adjustment. And by the way, that was 8.7% this year. And in, in 1980, take, take a guess at what it was, the, the, the COLA on, on Social Security. Was it was it high? I mean, that was a high inflationary point, right? It was. It was. I believe, if memory serves, it was fourteen point three percent. So, you know, and this is guaranteed by none other than, than Uncle Sam. So, as a as a financial advisor, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, well, we want to get this part right because this is the guaranteed stuff. So, this is the the part of my job that I love because. You know, you can't guarantee what's going to happen in the markets, right? And the eight percent increase that you get for for uh, being patient and, and waiting on your Social Security, and like I said, it's not it's not always the right call for everybody, but um, is um, is often the right call because you're getting the eight percent guarantee, and you can't get that in the marketplace. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that uh, those are some 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 things I want to kind of drive home and. Lastly, I might also say there's a lot of benefits out there too that people may not even be aware of that they're entitled to. So it's it's not this isn't of course you paid into this system, right? You can go onto your Social Security and everybody should should register. By the way, you need to register at SSA.gov uh, and and look at your statement because they don't send them out anymore in the mail. But one of the main reasons that you do that is that they report your income each year where your calculation for your 35 years, you know, highest income and all that stuff out, how they calculate, it's very complicated calculation. But if they've gotten something wrong on the reporting of your income, you only get three years and 15 days to correct it. So I, I mean, I just sat down with a, with a new potential client 
two days ago. He's 62 years old and it not doesn't have a count. And, and I think that's very common. I, I don't know the numbers of people that actually have gone on and, and registered and got their social security, but it's important. So, you know, listeners, you want to make sure that you go to SSA.gov and at least get that uh, register for, um, you know, account, look at your statement, review those uh, earnings uh, every year. And as, with regard to the, the different benefits, I mean, until I studied for the RSSA, I didn't realize that, for example, this is just one one benefit. If if you are taking care of an elderly parent, let's say that, that you're, you're 66 years old, and you've got a you know uh, 80-something-year-old parent, and um, you're drawing Social Security, and you are uh, their main, you're, you're supporting them, right? Financially, they're basically a dependent. Um, if you pass, they get a survivor benefit. And if you are a retiree, you're drawing Social Security, and you're, you end up uh, taking care. And this happened to a client of mine. He, is, he unfortunately had uh, his son was killed in a car wreck, and all of a sudden he had a four year old. Um, you know, in his uh, in his sixties, you start drawing Social Security. You also get a benefit for that for for those those children that you uh, either adopt or are taking care of. So. And there's more than that. I'm going to list them all here, but there's there's lots of benefits that you're entitled to and you paid into the system for, and so you should get every penny. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to exit uh, the realm of guaranteed income, and we're going to dive into more of uh, the variable scenario that is investments. So uh, Dwight's going to have a, a lot of great insight to share with us on that last leg of the stool, which is investments, uh, when we get back from this short break. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Dalbar. Dalbar is the nation's leading financial services market research firm and is committed to raising the standards of excellence in financial services. For more podcast episodes, visit financelab.dalbar.com. And now back to the episode. Hello and welcome back to Finance Lab. We're here with our guest, Dwight Rich from Rich Wealth Management, LLC. We've been talking about the retirement crisis in America, uh, problems and solutions. Before the break, we talked about what Dwight indicates as the three legs of the stool. The first one uh, being pensions, uh, which we spoke about. The second uh, being Social Security, uh, which which we dove deep into. Uh, and the last leg of the stool is, is one that is... Um, maybe more more variable in, in a lot of ways. And it's where a lot of attention is is paid, deservingly so, um, because with the variation, there's a great deal of, uh, of different outcomes that could occur uh, depending on contribution rates and, of course, rate of return. Um, I guess just to say no stool would be uh, too sturdy without that last leg uh, of investments. Um, so, Dwight, what... what uh, Words of wisdom do you have uh, for our listeners with respect to the investment portion of one's retirement savings goal? I don't want to address this part without at least saying, you know, one of the most important parts of that leg of the stool is just the uh, the habit of saving, you know, and starting early and um, setting money aside in your retirement accounts and, and so forth. I mean, that is, you know, when I look at successful uh, retirement plans and people that are in a really good position as we were, you know, a lot of times come, people come to us when they accumulate money and they're in their fifties or early sixties or, or later. And they finally, they finally think it's, you know, now it's serious. I've got, I've got this big lump of money and I've really just been kind of uh, flying on, but I see to my pants with it. Um, but, but the most important part there, I think is that, you know, there is a consistent, uh, putting aside and, and, and saving. So, but aside from that, when you actually talk about the investments, again, there, that's a, 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 a subject that um, you get lots of varying opinions in and lots of people, obviously with their hands out. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously in, in the business and we manage money and we are a fiduciary asset manager, but you can, uh, manage your money in, in so many different ways. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to me and, and not to go off uh, to, to digress here too much, but, you know, since the invention of the internet and Wikipedia and Google and everything, you, you would think that people would just get a lot 
uh, well, I air quotes, smarter about lots of things, you know. But the reality is that I think, uh, and again, looking from a 30,000 foot view that you've been kind of put into some of this disinformation loop. And, uh, you know, I think that the education on people uh, with regard to investing is, is much better than it was 25 years ago. And people realize that maybe, uh, you know, certain approaches are not worthy uh, or you know, the fees have come down in general. But um, still, you, you get uh, what I would call uh, these, these, these shiny objects and these distractions. And I don't want to throw, uh, you know, crypto under the bus, uh, but, but I'm going to do it right now. I mean, I think I can't tell you how many people, uh, just in my social life would come up to me about, you know, Bitcoin and this. And, and I, I'm not going to make any prediction or of its demise or its appreciation. But you have to ask yourself, you know, have you done everything else in your financial life, right? And your investments to the point where you can afford to speculate which obviously crypto is very speculative. And, and most of these folks had not. These were, you know, I can think of one, one, one of them was a, a person that worked at a restaurant that we frequent, you know, and I know he's got three kids and I know that he doesn't make a, a ton of money. And uh, and he was talking about taking his uh, uh, money he'd made that he thought uh, was extra money on his last house and was going to roll all of that into crypto. And I was just like, oh man, you know, you, so but if we if we really get just down uh, to uh, the fundamentals of it, what I see from a, a broad perspective is a few things I think that um, that people are missing. Number one, I mean, hopefully most investors, people in their four hundred and ks, and just the average working people out there have heard the term asset allocation. They kind of know what that is. That's diversifying your portfolio, right? So, so hopefully they know that. Um, and then it's, uh, you getting an asset allocation that's appropriate for, you know, how old you are, how conservative you are, how aggressive, et cetera, your, your whole situation. But then peeling off the different pieces of, of, of that asset allocation, here, here's where I see the deficits. Number one, there's a lot of focus on the stock market, as there should be. I think that a, a good portfolio typically is going to have some allocation to equities, stocks, um, regardless of, um, for most people, I would say, you know, and that may be a very small percentage or it may be a larger percentage. But I think the piece that, that people miss out on is, okay, but what about the, the fixed income, the bond side, the, the, the more boring part? And Time and time again, that is where I see there's just not that much knowledge uh, in the general populace about fixed income when it's probably whatever that percentage may be. Maybe it's only 20% or maybe it's as, as much as 70 or 80% that it ought to be, depending on the person's uh, risk tolerance. Uh, so consequently, there's just a lot of mistakes and in, in, uh, in, in, in places that... Uh, they can have serious um, consequences. And, and I mean, 2022 was a perfect example of that. I mean, last, uh, last year was the worst bond market performance in, I think, history. Um, it was down, I think, around 13.5% or so on the, on the Barclays uh, Aggregate Bond Index, which is the uh, kind of the main index for, for fixed income. And I do think that that was in some ways avoidable for, for any, anybody really that manages money in the fixed income world. I mean, interest rates went down to, I think on a 10 year, four tenths of 1% during COVID. Um, so trying to beat four tenths of a percent for a 10 year bond, I, I think was, <laughs> you know, uh, it was obvious that interest rates could go up and, and really crush the bond market. The other part of it that I think, and I, I really think, and this is something I really don't think investors are uh, very aware of. And I'll, I'll mention the Dalbar study, which I, I think is very, very important information. Is just this whole payment for order flow thing. And, you know, you talk to, the, to people about this and, and just the eyes glaze over because they, they have no idea what's going on. You're aware of what payment for order flow is, right, Corey? 
Yeah, I am. But, uh, you know, for our listeners, maybe if you could explain, because I, I would imagine the vast majority of them will have no idea what you're talking about, but it'll make perfect sense uh, once you explain it, I'm sure. Well, and I'm not sure of what year this happened. And again, I was preparing for a, a presentation later next month. And uh, so I, w- I went in a little more deep on it. And I, I remember being at Merrill Lynch um, in the early 2000s and not to get too far in the weeds here, but we used to do, do some syndicate trading and we would set stops on things and used to work very well. And all of a sudden it wasn't working and we couldn't do it. What payment order for order flow is, is, and I, I don't remember exactly what year, there's a great book by Michael Lewis called Flash Boys. You can Google his appearance on 60 Minutes, his interview does a great job of explaining it. But it's basically high frequency traders have placed these huge uh, supercomputers, super cooled, very close to the exchange. And large trading houses, like almost all of them, but like TD Ameritrade or Robinhood or all, all, the, all the, the major players, they sell their order flow to uh, these high frequency traders. Um, Citadel's, I think, the biggest one. And so basically, these high frequency traders um, with these, these, these uh, uh, supercomputers can get in front of your trade and basically just um, take little pieces off of the, the spread. And uh, I know Charlie Munger's no big fan. He's, <laughs> he's, he, he says they're about as useful as rats in a granary. And I would agree. Um, you know, they try to make the argument that it uh, somehow creates liquidity, but I, I, I just don't buy that in it. And it's evidenced by the fact that it's illegal in a lot of countries, including the UK, the Netherlands, Australia, and, and many others, uh, Singapore. So in the United States, we're, we allow that. And I think, and, and that's where you saw all of a sudden trades offered for free, or they will give you. $500 to come and uh, trade on their platforms. Um, so I don't really think uh, the evidence shows that, uh, that maybe that those trades, I think it's somewhat disingenuous to say that they're, they're free. Now I'm glad that the, the, the uh, costs have come down. I think that's been in the, to the benefit of the consumer, but, but here's where I think the insidious part of it is, is that, and I'm, I'm, I'm a capitalist and I, I believe in, you know, free markets and so forth. But at the same time, you got to protect consumers because this, this is their retirement. We already talked about the, the crisis. We've got this kind of two-legged stool for most Americans now. And on the savings side, they're being nudged, um, you know, not so subtly into, you know, online trading. And uh, the, the, this uh, illusion that it's free and anybody can do it. And that leads me into, uh, I think, kind of how we got acquainted you know, I've been a subscriber to the Dalbar Quantitative Analysis of Investor Behavior uh, Report for years. I've always found it interesting. And it shows, it's the, it's the only that I'm aware of data set that shows the reality of how investors are performing next to the benchmarks. And I'm looking at the like the 30-year number in front of me here. And... Now, these are mutual fund trades, and you know a heck of a lot more about this than I do, but those trades only happen on a daily basis at the end of the day. That's the way mutual funds are traded. These are open-end mutual funds. And the startling, the probably the scariest part of this report is the, the 30-year number on average fixed income investor returns. And that is a negative number. If I'm, this is from the 2022 report, it was a negative 0.14% return on the average. And, and of course, that takes into consideration the cash flow. When's the money coming in? When's it going out? And so on. When the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index averaged 4.55%. So the reason I mentioned that as it relates to the payment for order flow, I think it all kind of works together. I mean, by the way, did the math just uh, before we got on, the, on this uh, this podcast? You put a hundred grand into the average uh, fixed income investor thirty years ago. You, you came out the thirty years later with ninety six grand. Okay, now, if you put it into the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, that was uh, about three hundred ninety thousand dollars. 
So the opportunity cost is huge. And this was the part of the portfolio that the investors were trying to keep conservative. Um, so it's just a shocking number. And here's the, tra- here's the thing about it. You know, um, it, it, it happened, and I know the report goes into this, it has to do with investor behavior and, you know, people uh, buying at the top and getting, you know, getting really euphoric when the, the market's going up and looking at past returns and jumping in on the bandwagon. And then when things get bad, they sell out and they don't have a discipline and maybe they don't have any good advice. But um, if we look at that number based on just mutual fund trades, and we'll probably, you know, we talked about this, maybe, maybe Dalbar can put that the data set together, but but I would suspect that the numbers on these personal trading accounts are have got to be so much worse than than the mutual fund numbers. So and and and, and there's no real risk. I mean, I know I think that I believe Robinhood or some of these other platforms, and not to beat up on Robinhood, but there's top of mind, have been sued, you know, for suitability and things like that. But you know, if you trade on your own, you don't have anybody to blame but yourself. So you, you can't really sue yourself, right? Um, so it, it's it's a money uh, machine for a lot of these organizations to sell, sell their payment for order flow and kind of, I, I don't think they're being, you know, they're evil necessarily. They're trying to make a profit, but I really think it can be at the expense uh, at the average investor who is left with this two-legged stool. I like to think of things, you know, kind of like from the analogy of what were we doing 50 or 60 years ago that we no longer do today that, you know, if you jumped back in, in a time machine, you'd be horrified to see people doing, whether that's smoking or bloodletting or whatever. And, and I think that some of these systems and some of these problems and some of this knowledge base, the general knowledge has really got to get to a much higher level. I think it will. I'm an optimist that things like the Dalbar study, maybe this payment for order flow is made illegal and the general population gets smarter and smarter with their money. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the fixed income because earlier you you had mentioned that there's maybe a little bit of a, a knowledge gap, particularly with fixed income that investors tend to be a bit more knowledgeable or, or perhaps just have more access to information related to equities uh, as opposed to fixed income. And, and that's the irony of it uh, is that the fixed income is supposed to be the more, you know, the stable, it's the fixed, you know, income. And yet when we, we look at the behavior, especially over the last few years, the fixed income investors have been behaving very badly. Um, and the, the results were, you know, what you just mentioned, and you know, most recently in 2022, um, you know, a, a negative number in the face of, you know, a decent four and change, you know, return for the the Bloomberg's Barclays Aggregate Bond. You know, in 2022, we saw uh, an or you know, two, I think it was the year before that, 2021, we saw an alarming outflow from fixed income. It was something in like seven to eight percent of all fixed income fund assets were liquidated in that year. I didn't know We'd that. never seen anything like that before. And this was fixed income. You know, like you, <laughs> this isn't where you would think to be seeing these wild uh, swings in behavior. And, uh, but that, but that's, that's what we've seen. And, it, and it's just, it's ironic because it's the asset class where you would, you would think you would see it less. Do you think that, 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 that's um, sort of a symptom of that knowledge gap or what, what, what are your thoughts behind that and, and fixed income specifically? You know, uh, you, you quote that number, Corey, and uh, I'm going to guess, let's see, they, they went out in 2021. That was before the market, you know, the stock market just absolutely exploded here. Was it 2020 and 2021? It probably were, were pouring into the stock market with that, with the money that went out of the fixed income market. And uh, by the way, uh, fixed income did was down in 2021. If memory serves, I think it was down maybe only one or one and a half percent. I should look at that. But I, but in this year, I think we're also negative, maybe a smidge, uh, because interest rates have gone up about a half a percent on the tenure. But so, I mean, you got to put yourself in that twenty. I think it was twenty. Was it twenty twenty one? I'd have to look at this. But the gap between growth stocks and value stocks 
in 2021, I think that was the year, was something on the order of 25 or 30%. It was absolutely crazy. Growth stocks being the more tech-oriented and, and value being more the, the more dividend and lower PE stocks. So it's just too general for, for more laymen out there. That's the two general styles of investing or growth and value. And, and I'm actually about to do some research again for another uh, presentation. But uh, and I don't know if we met, I don't know if we talked about this in the past, but I have you know these aren't solicitations anything we're talking about today, but. One way to look at, I always like to look at actual returns, right? Just like the Dalbar report. If you look at the actual returns of the two ETFs that represent growth versus value, which is, for example, the Russell uh, 1000 value ETF for my shares and, and the Russell 1000 growth ETF, they are since inception, which was, I think, in 2000, it's May of 22nd of 2000. One is 7%, 7.08%. The other is 6.83%. They are neck and neck by you know just a, less than 20 basis points. But in that year, you had a 25 or 30% divergence growth over value. And then that flipped in 2022, by the way. You know, when, the, when the stock market sold off, value outperformed uh, handsomely. So people chase returns, right? They, 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 they absolutely chase returns. And I think that you get a lot of uh, FOMO or YOLO or whatever you want to call it. And, and uh, people saw everybody making money in the stock market and cryptocurrency. And so they blew out of their fixed income and said, okay, I'm going to jump onto the, uh, to the equity bandwagon and just in time for the worst market we've seen in years. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's, you know, oftentimes you know, how it happens. It's that, that inflection point, right? That, that, that triggers people to get in is, is almost that same inflection point, which brings the, you know, the pullback or something. So the market's zigging when the investors are zagging, uh, unfortunately. And that's, uh, you know, one of the main takeaways of, of the, of Dalbar's, you know, Quaid report, just to, you know, send messages to investors to, to help save them from themselves, you know, so that you're at least aware of, of these behavioral influences. Cause if one isn't even aware of them, you know, how is, how is one going to be able to mitigate it? So, you know, just sort of put a bow on this. What is it that we could, that we can learn from, from this data? And ultimately, what's the, the, the main takeaway that you would want listeners to, to remember uh, in order to make better decisions in a general sense? Well, I think, I, I think one of the things that investors need to be aware of is just, just it's the whole, um, Dunning, I think it's the Dunning Kruger effect, or somebody called it the Lake Wobegon effect. I don't know if you remember that Garrison Keeler radio show where he said, uh, beginning Lake Wobegon was where all the women were strong, all the men were handsome, and all the children were above average. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you look at like kind of Dunning Kruger's, basically, there's this uh, chart saying that you're, uh, you're overconfident the less you know about something. And I think if you look at your financial assets, you only, you only get one go at this, you know, one financial body, so to speak, that, that you really need to protect that with every resource that you can think of. And I, I, I do believe in the value of professional advice when it comes to that. And if nothing else, then, you know, a good advisor has lived the financial lives of probably hundreds of people, if not thousands, vicariously, seen their mistakes, seen all different types of personalities, and can help um, you know, help you make good decisions that, that, that you're separate. You, you get into the, the, the heat of battle there with life and you're seeing your statement go up or you see your investment go down and you, you know, you get, uh, hey, I'm, I'm as guilty as the next person in my own personal portfolio. I've made mistakes. But I think that if you get some professional advice, there's a huge value in that. And um, I think, you know, uh, recognizing some of these bigger um, pieces, and there's the historical and the evidence of uh, the Dalbar uh, Quake Report staring you right in the face that I think it's, it's, it's probably – uh, very ambitious, uh, if not uh, delusional, to think that you're going to go in and start trading your account and and, uh, and do well. So um, I, I hire professionals for a lot of the things 
that, um, you know, and I've tried, believe me, you know, whether it's home improvement or this or that, I just know how much it's going to cost me once I, I, I mess something up and then I'm going to have to go back and, and, and hire somebody to fix my mistake. Um, unless it's something I've got a lot of experience with, I'm just probably going to hire somebody to do it if, if, if it's not too cost prohibitive. So, you know, I think getting professional help is, is important. I think getting that social security, uh, decision right and not taking it cavalierly looking at it as a longevity uh insurance is huge i think those are some of the, the most important things well thanks dwight um I, I i learned a lot today i had a lot of fun in our conversation where we're running out of time now but i do want to thank you so much uh, for being uh, a part of today's episode uh and to all the the listeners check out uh, the, the page on financelab.dalbar.com. You'll be able, obviously, where you're able to listen to this podcast, but there will also be um, some supplemental materials and, and some links uh, that'll help uh, to supplement the topic that uh, that we were talking about today. So be sure to, to check that out. Dwight, thanks so much for, for coming on. I, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I, I appreciate the work you guys do at Dalbar. And believe me, if you guys are ever able to get those uh, performance numbers from the online traders, I'll be the one, first one to subscribe and uh, get the popcorn out. <laughs> <laughs> We're working on it. So yeah, thanks to all of our listeners and we'll catch you next time on Finance Lab. Securities offered through International Asset Advisors, LLC, FINRA, and SIPC. Financial advisory services offered through International Asset Investment Management, LLC, an SEC investment advisor. The opinions expressed here today are of Dwight Rich and Rich Wealth Management, LLC, and not that of International Asset Advisory. All information contained herein is derived from sources we believe are reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. Thanks for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please visit financelab.dalbar.com to connect with today's guest. We'll see you on our next episode of Finance Lab.